Good morning. Please pray with me to open our service. Father God, we, we thank you for the awesome, awesome opportunity we have to come before you to open up your word, uh, to hear what you have to teach us. Father, I pray that the words that we would um, look at and examine this morning would examine us and examine our hearts, change our lives. Father, we pray, we praise you for the opportunity even this past week uh, as a church to be able to participate in something like um, the Eau Claire Marathon and, and so many of the runners that uh, participated in that for Team World Vision and how what an awesome opportunity that was uh, to glorify you by uh, being a physical and tangible expression of your gospel of bringing clean water to people. Um, and so we thank you and praise you and offer up uh, this service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll start with a question. Bridge Kids, I will start with Bridge Kids. And then, I will start with a question. What's on your playlist? Whether you enjoy some music uh, after you wake up in the morning over a relaxing cup of coffee, or as you exercise, or even run. Many of you participated in the, in the Eau Claire Marathon last weekend, either the, the whole marathon, the half, or the relay. And if you're anything like me, you enjoy running to music. And uh, some of you may have a similar pre-race ritual to mine. Without fail, no, it's not uh, the traditional Saturday evening worship service we have, as, um, as beneficial as that is. It's not anything um, practical like a pasta feed or stretching. It's selecting the songs that you think will allow you to run your best. And so my ritual looks something like this. Staying up way too late the night before a race, because nothing prepares you better than a lack of sleep. Deleting the songs you had on your running playlist when you didn't run as fast the year before, because obviously it was the music. Forgetting your iTunes password, resetting your iTunes password, and searching the internet for songs that you think have the best tempo to be on a running playlist. Because you know you've got to be between 150 to 180 beats per minute. You've got to delete all the mellow, you know, you can't have bony Iver, you can't have, like, you, you just got to, you got to take all the mellow stuff out because you need something with a, with a fast enough tempo. And then you, you just end up using your kids' songs that they've downloaded, like Toby Mac and everything else, because you're too cheap to buy new songs. So, what's on your playlist? Well, music has always been a gift by God to us all throughout human history. 
And it's been uh, good for the mind, the body, and soul, and is an awesome way to glorify God. We are blessed with awesome musicians in this church. Uh, Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Leah, for leading that. But music has always been a gift by God, and and this was the case uh, in Jesus' day as well. Jesus, in a sense, had a playlist. It wasn't anything he could, obviously play on a phone or a device that we have today, but there were songs that he would have sung, that he would have listened to, that um, his community would have sung, and primarily they were the Psalms. The Psalms are a group of 150 songs compiled for God's people to reflect their history, and the Psalms, one of the awesome things about the Psalms is that they contain every sort of human emotion. The word psalms means praise song, and so there's a lot of the songs that are praise songs, of course, and thanksgiving, but there's also confession, lament, anger. The psalms are multidimensional, just like Adrian shared beautifully about uh, some of the multidimensional aspects of, of a holiday like Mother's Day. The psalms perfectly encapsulate the full range of human emotion. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so beneficial in ministering to God's people throughout human history. Jesus, we find, quotes the Psalms more than any other book of Scripture. I was surprised to find that out, but he quotes the Psalms more than any other book of Scripture. And so as you read through the Gospels and notice where he's speaking, many of the times you'll see in the footnotes, this comes directly out of the Psalms. He is repeatedly and constantly quoting these song lyrics throughout his ministry, throughout his life, because they were so beneficial in his life and ministry. A couple examples, some well-known verses that, that might be familiar to us but we might not realize, hey, that's, that's Jesus quoting right out of the Psalms. In Luke 20, when Jesus is confronted by religious leaders in his day, and he's trying to think of the, the right um, way to engage them and, and give a word picture of, of what's going on, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's right out of Psalm 118. And at the end of his life, when he's on a cross, he quotes two different psalms there. You might be familiar with a very familiar, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's straight out of Psalm 22. And his his final words, out of Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, he is constantly quoting the Psalms. And even after his death and resurrection, okay, that that evening of the day that he rose from the grave, he appears to his disciples, his closest followers. They're in a locked room, hiding. He appears to them in in Luke 24. And he shows them the, the marks of crucifixion on his hands and his feet. He eats some fish for him, so they 
They finally believe he's not a ghost. And he explains, he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So God, through his spirit, inspired the, the writers of the Old Testament, and in particular the Psalms, to ultimately point to a coming Messiah. And in, in the New Testament, we get a, a clear picture of that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so God uses the Old Testament to point to the coming Messiah. Jesus, during his ministry, is constantly quoting the Psalms. And in the New Testament... We find that those writers, the disciples and the apostles and his closest followers, are constantly quoting the psalm to point back to Jesus. So a few quick examples. Peter, in what we would recognize as the first Christian sermon in Acts 2, he quotes directly out of a couple psalms, Psalm 110 and Psalm 16. The book of Hebrews, we don't know the author, but the book of Hebrews, its ideas and threads are constantly woven together by different psalms. And Paul, in his letters, Paul refers to the Psalms, and he quotes the Psalms over 30 times. And so we see God using the Old Testament writers to point to the coming Messiah. We find Jesus, when he arrives, uses the Psalms constantly throughout his ministry. And then we find the New Testament writers using the Psalms constantly to point back to Jesus. And the church for the past 2,000 years has been inspired and used the Psalms in our ministry today. I love this quote. Uh, Martin Luther, the great Reformation leader, says, The Psalms are the Bible in miniature. Now, last week we looked at a Psalm, Psalm 19. And we'll continue this week with Psalm 139. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll stay in the Psalms. So please turn with me to Psalm 139. As a kid, I always loved the Psalms because it was easy to find, right in the middle of the Bible. And Psalm 139 talks about many of the great attributes of God. How he is all-powerful, his omnipotence. He is present everywhere, his omnipresence. But what I, I want to focus on are the first few verses here, verses 1 through 6, that focus on God's perfect knowledge, his omniscience, and our desire to be known perfectly. God's perfect knowledge and our desire to be known perfectly. So in 139, this is on page 433 of the Bridge Bibles. I also believe we have this up on the screen. Beginning in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. What do we see in those first few verses? Well, there's one word that shows up 
repeatedly, even throughout those first six verses. There's one word that shows up in those six verses and we'll find shows up at the end as well. And that's the idea to know. Verse 1, you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me to attain. And then turning over to the end of the psalm, as if to emphasize this, this King David ends the psalm in verses 23 and 24. He says, search me and know my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So at the start of this song and at the end of the song, we have repeated six different times this idea that God knows or this request by the author, David, to be known by God. Now, in our Western mindset, we might typically think of to know as a collection of facts or information. Okay, seems pretty basic. In an ancient Near East mindset, in a Hebrew mindset, it means more than that. It can certainly mean facts, but it also means to know by experience. It means to know by relationship. Things that can change you. And so, it's not just to, to inform, but to live. And to know is not just to inform, it's to transform your life. So God's all-knowing nature, one of the fundamental attributes of God is omniscience. It's just another way to say God knows everything. Is the theme repeated all Throughout many ways throughout Scripture, First John uh, puts it simply, First John 3.20, John just says, He, God, knows everything. He knows everything. So God's knowledge of all is one of his great attributes, and our desire to be known completely is one of our great needs. But there's a problem. There's a problem. I love, I came across a, a quote I love. This is by a writer named Julie Ackerman. She's uh, one of the writers for a little devotional called Our, Our Daily Bread. And highlighting this, this problem, she writes, one of the most difficult inner conflicts we have is our desire to be known versus our fear of being known. One of the most difficult inner conflicts we have is our desire to be known versus our fear of being known. And this most basic human fear, this insecurity, that if we are fully known with all our baggage and junk, that we could be rejected. The fear that the ones who know us best might reject us. But it, it wasn't always this way. See, we have this innate desire to be known by God because we were created by God. 
And so if you keep your a finger in Psalm 139 and turn to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have this desire to be known by God because, in fact, we were created by God in his image. And so in Genesis 1, verses 27, we read, So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And originally, it was good. We were known, and we had no fear. A few verses later in Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, including humanity at this point, and it was very good. Originally, it was very good as God intended it to be. And even turning ahead to Genesis 2, so we had this perfect relationship with God. We were known, and we had a perfect relationship with others. Adam and Eve, God's first created humans, had this perfect relationship with each other. At the end of chapter 2, we read Adam Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So what we would consider as complete vulnerability, being fully known by another, but no shame. We had the desire to be known by God and others, yet we had no fear of being known. But, sin messed it up. Sin messed it up because sin led to fear and hiding and shame. Is what the Bible says. In Genesis chapters 3, beginning in verse 7, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and sin enters the world, we begin to see some of its first and most immediate consequences. Beginning in 3.7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they, Adam and Eve, they realized that they were naked, And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord in the garden as he was walking in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Sin messes it up, and it leads immediately to fear, to hiding, to shame. And so now, we fear being known completely because of our sin, and so we hide and Adam's case physically and more common in our cases emotionally and relationally because of the fear that the ones who know us best might reject us. 
So what does the Bible present as a solution? Well, Psalm 139 gives us the start to help figure that out. Returning to our passage and going to the end of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 again. For the writer David, who had his own baggage, to put it lightly, he arranged for a man to be murdered and to take his wife, where David cries out to God, again, expanding the full range of human emotion, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. God, in his grace, promises one who would come and though wounded by evil, he would crush and defeat evil. Back in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent, God speaking to Satan says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So going back to Genesis, we get the first and earliest picture of God's redemptive plan, of his grace that would unfold throughout the the rest of the pages of Scripture. And with that promise, he also gave a visible sign to Adam and Eve by shedding the blood of an animal to create a garment to cover their shame. In Genesis 3:21, we read the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. He, he sheds the blood of an animal to make a garment to clothe their shame. And it's a visible sign of this promise that he's made that one day Somebody would come whose blood would be shed for their sin, to cover their shame, to cover our shame. And so the promise that we receive from the Bible is that God says, I know your sin, I know your shame, but my grace and love is greater. My plans for redemption are greater. And the one who knows you best, the God who created you, loves you the most. The one who knows you the best actually loves you the most. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, writing in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 5, beginning in verse 8. See, we're afraid that our sin will lead God to reject us. But Paul writes in verse 8, 5 verse 8, he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul's basically writing that the one who knows you the best loves you the most through the work and person of Jesus Christ. His death for our sin to cover our shame, his life through resurrection, his ascension into heaven where he still lives today, and one day when he will return, ultimately conquering sin and death and removing evil and bringing heaven and earth back together again. The one who knows you the best loves you the most through Jesus Christ. It's God's redemptive plan that's woven through the first few chapters of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And right in the middle, we get this collection of psalms that exposes every one of our thoughts and emotions in a way, in a poetic way that's different from any other form of writing that we can experience on a human level and on a heart level sometimes when our brain checks out. I also love a, uh, a quote from one of my favorite Christian writers from Tim Keller writing, writing about uh, this idea, this idea of being known and loved. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. And to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to, to, but to be fully known and truly loved is like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. We seek to know God and be known by God, not just as a collection of information, but through experiencing his grace through Jesus Christ, through a relationship that is reconciled with the God who created us through Jesus Christ, that transforms our lives to expand the kingdom of Jesus Christ in our world and in our community. What would it look like for us, known fully by God and secure in that, that his blood has covered our shame, if we extended that to others that we interacted with? What would it look like for our relationships to extend that vulnerability in appropriate ways with others. Does that mean you tell everything to everybody? No. But it does mean that there's somebody that you are completely open and vulnerable with. 
if you're married at the very least, that would be your spouse. But more so than that, with guys coming alongside other guys in an open and honest relationship, women coming along other women and being able to be fully vulnerable with them. And for the security that we can have, knowing that the God who loves us most, the God who knows us most, loves us best. Because we have the perfect example of vulnerability in Jesus Christ. Who came from heaven to earth, who took on the form of the most vulnerable, a baby. Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, writing about how Christ and his coming is an example for us with others in relationships. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So God's gift of his son is our greatest example in how to be vulnerable and open and known by others. So what would it look like if we practiced that in appropriate ways, at appropriate times, in our human relationships with others? Well, I think just like the Hebrew word to know means not just a gathering of information. I think it would deepen our experience in our relationships in ways that we only hope for right now. It would change our lives right now, bring that, that concept of change in ways that we only hope for right now. Jesus took our shame through his shed blood, and he conquered sin and death through rising from the grave. And God can find something redemptive in whatever we've done, whatever junk and baggage that we have for his glory and to change our world today. So a few applications. What's on your playlist? If you haven't been in the Psalms lately, I would entirely recommend reading through the Psalms. We don't know the tune, we don't know the melody, but we still have the beauty of the written word. And number two, I would encourage you, if you don't have already, um, take the opportunity with a good friend or a trusted companion to practice vulnerability by sharing the fears, the hopes that you have and speaking into one another's life we have some great um, guys groups and women's groups that, that do that and, and are wonderful opportunities for that. I also know of guys that get together one-on-one -on -one for coffee or breakfast and women that do the same. Take advantage of those opportunities. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me 
and know my anxious thoughts. Please pray with me. Father God, uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to walk through your Psalms, to walk through the songbook uh, that you gave your people, the songbook that Jesus uh, would have learned at a very early age from his earthly mother Mary. Father, it covers the whole range of human emotion, this multidimensional um, life that we live. But you give us the benefit to walk alongside believers writing thousands of years before us. But they struggle with the same sin and shame that we struggle with. But yet we read about your faithfulness and we know that your, all of your scripture, including the Psalms, points to the Son that you sent, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who rose again, who ascended into heaven, and who one day will return. And at that point, we, we will be fully known with no, with no shame, and sin will be done away with. And Father, in the meantime... Uh, you give us the benefit of your church to expand your kingdom here in this world and in our community. We praise you and thank you. Amen.